This episode is sponsored once again by BetterHelp. Perhaps many of us out there are still finding some things difficult in life. It may not necessarily just be the fallout from the pandemic or the events that we see across the world. All sorts of things come to try us, don't they? And anything can weigh heavily on you. Life can be proper tough sometimes and you may need someone to sound off on. We all need to talk to somebody at some point. So if something's preventing you from achieving your wants or goals or is stopping you being happy, then perhaps it's something that BetterHelp can help you with. Now this isn't self-help being advocated. What BetterHelp does is assesses any issues you may be facing and with a broad range of expertise available from them, specialists in all manner of issues and some which may not be locally available to you, BetterHelp then matches you up with your own best-suited licensed professional therapist for professional counselling, with your needs firmly in mind. In less than 24 hours, you can start communicating with your counsellor in a confidential online environment. Someone you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with, can message anytime you want or feel you need to, and from whom you can expect timely, thoughtful responses from. It's a very much more affordable service than traditional offline counselling and is available worldwide so clients anywhere can use it if they wish. If it's even needed, BetterHelp has financial aid available for its use. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE and join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com forward slash T-C-E. Hello all and the warmest of welcomes once again to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the premier North Wales one person and his cat spare room based true crime podcast that looks mainly for those cases that don't roll off the tongue or at the forefront of the mind the mostly unfamiliar and obscure tales from the deepest, darkest recesses of the UK and Ireland. Seeking these out for your listening is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. The world's smallest cow is right here with me as ever. And you guys are the ones keeping me doing this. The enthusiasts who make the show so worthwhile to do and keep it being my passion. It's fab as ever having you here joining me for another time around, and as you have, then I hope that you and all dear to you are all good, all safe, and all well. So, it's the end of Thriller. Thriller time. Enough of that nonsense. I was going to sing it, but I tried it on the recording and it sounded bloody awful, so I'm not doing it. But yes, enough of that nonsense now. We've arrived at the final part of this series' Thriller arc, the Aftermath episode. And we'll be down to it shortly. Firstly though, big thanks once again for your feedback concerning the tale, as well as the mostly kind reviews of it. And I say mostly because, although I do rarely look at reviews, and I've a very thick skin anyway, so I don't see me arse or anything, but negative ones. There are always a couple that boggle your mind and make you roll your eyes, aren't there? You think, why have you just bothered? You know, the ones who are given by people with the personality of a hot cup of piss. But for the genuine ones out there who've taken the time to, thank you very much, all. Thank you kindly too to both the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show this time around. With shout-outs going out to Angela Santos, Stacey Wolf, Tim Ashton, Laurie Jones, Tina Alexandria Brown, Ben Kirk and the fabulously named Biscuit Butt, plus Sarah Minure, Laura Nailis, Jennifer Collier and Carrie Carmody who have opted to annually support the show. And apologies if I said anybody's name wrong there. 
thank you so much guys it's bloody amazing of you to do so now swag has gone out to some but all of these guys are getting themselves bonus enthusiast tales such as the bravo two heroes the rotten rose of devon an offering to the angels and the latest one predators in the park to name just a few and by the way apologies for its lateness there will be the latest one out shortly it's already started i've just been a bit duffy and mulkied out for the past well bloody forever it feels like but rest assured something's picked out and that'll be winging its way over soon i'll have to get that cat to pull his paw out and be a better assistant i tell you so if you guys want to become supporters of the show like this kind lot, it's easier to do than seeing the sense in dodging a cup of coffee that Bill Cosby makes for you, and it costs less than non-sweating Prince Andrew spends on Underarm Charm. Just seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast over on the Patreon site, got same show logo and all of that, and you can just go from there. Or there's no need to because I've done all of that for you with a clickable link in the episode show notes. Right then, let's draw the thriller arc to a close. Over the past couple of months, I brought to you what I think has to be the most in-depth case I've ever covered on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, because it really has had it all, as I said at the start, hasn't it? These two really are two of the most monstrous individuals I've ever come across whilst researching true crime. And although I've known the case pretty well for many years, it's only been really further looking into it in the past couple of months that it's dawned on me exactly just what evil we're talking about here. But I shall get to my thoughts about it later on. So to quickly recap in general, we've heard of the crimes, the investigation and eventual detection that spanned almost 20 years to ensure that John Duffy and David Mulcahy would never again walk the streets to cause carnage. So what did that guilty verdict for Mulcahy on the 3rd of February 2001 that put him away for life, that drew a line under the railway killers, or the thriller killers, whatever you want to call them, what did that guilty verdict mean for those affected by the case? Not just the victims themselves, or the families and friends of the victims, but those responsible for bringing the pair to justice. Well let's catch up with them right now. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So as always, please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for the final part of the Thriller Arc, an episode that I've entitled Aftermath. So, immediately following the guilty verdict and the subsequent life sentences passed down upon Mulcahy, there were conflicting emotions in court number one of the Old Bailey. Several of his victims were there to see him convicted, and as we said, collapsed into each other's arms when the verdict was announced. The feeling of such a moment must be, well, it's unimaginable, isn't it? Several afterwards came up and thanked police officers who'd worked on Operation Marford to lead to that moment, them now finally being able to shake off the ever-real fear that that second person was still out there not knowing who it was, thinking it could be any man that they passed on the street. What a horrendous feeling that must be, always having that very real fear that someone who's done that to you is still out there, never having faced justice. It must just be terrible. And these thanks came from the partners and even the children of the women who'd been attacked also. For example, the husband of one of the Danish au pairs that Mulcahy had raped in 1984 
who had only been told of the event some 15 years after it occurred, was quoted as saying, You have no idea of the impact this has had on my wife. Now she's able to get out of a car and walk down a street at night. In the whole time I've known her, I knew there was something, but I never wanted to push it. Just thank you. Now it's undoubtedly hard for any victim of such a terrible crime to sit in court and see their attacker, but it also must be for their loved ones as well. How must you feel? How much must you want to go and marmalise that person in the dock? And especially when they smirk like that as they're being led away, arrogant to the very last. Through all I've researched, I think all of the victims and their support that was there to witness Mulcahy being sent down were nothing short of remarkable. I really do. But there were others there in court who were equally as affected by the actions of Mulcahy that weren't getting the justice that they so deserved, with at least one victim who was attacked by him, one that we referred to in the Two Bodies with One Brain episode, there to witness him going down, but not for the attack upon her. She was following the verdict to give a very open interview to the Guardian newspaper, her anonymity maintained, and which I shall recount here as follows. The woman, referred to only as Jess, was attacked in South London in July 1983, as I said the offence I referred to in the opening episode that charges were never brought for, and although she reported the crime, a police doctor collected forensic evidence from her and prescribed her the morning after pill, she then heard nothing more, although it was linked to the Operation Heart offences. After going to the police, Jess decided that she just had to get on with her life and recounted, I kept telling myself that I hadn't been murdered, I hadn't been mutilated and I should just think of the whole thing as a one night stand. I remember telling a friend about it soon afterwards in a very upbeat way, insisting chirpily that I wasn't going to be a victim. Jess tried having therapy soon afterwards but in terms of recovery that wasn't beneficial at the time with her explaining. I had some very damaging therapy sessions, first with a woman who gave me internal examinations to see if I had a phobia about having things stuck up my vagina, then with a psychologist who advised me to go out and have lots of flings and take risks with sex. I now know that what I should have had was a period of bereavement with no sex at all. For a while I had terrible dreams about half-dead, rotting animals. A friend of mine who had also been raped had almost identical dreams. Now though she ultimately discovered more helpful therapy since these initial ones, some healing had since taken place, and at the time of Mulcahy's conviction she was a successful professional working in the field of criminal justice, Jess still felt in herself unable to get emotionally or physically close to a man and had in place avoidance strategies to stop herself getting too close to friends, family or colleagues. She went on, I feel maybe I would have been more successful if it hadn't been for the rape. Somehow it's held me back from going after the things I want in my career. I'm more inclined to do what others want me to do. If a friend phones me, I don't always return the call. I can't manage that leap of energy to make a connection with people. If I go to a party, I'm happy to dance but I don't want to talk to people I don't know. In some way, all this has affected my language too. At times, I just lose words. And if I come across someone I feel is more powerful than me, I can't bear to be in the same room with them. 
Having lived with this since 1983, when the case was reopened following Duffy's confessions more than a decade later, Jess thought the details of the crime against her would at last be aired in court, only for the Crown Prosecution Service to tell her that in her case, there was insufficient evidence for a realistic prospect of conviction, because the forensic evidence collected from the night of the rape had not been passed on by the police. But determined to be there to see justice done, Jess took her place in the public gallery to see a rapist for herself. She went on, At first, I was terribly nervous about seeing him, and the first time he made eye contact, I just looked away. But I became bolder and started to stare him out. When he was questioned about identity parades, I stared really hard at him. So many details of the rapes were identical to mine. When the woman in the witness box began to cry, I cried too because I felt totally empathetic with her, even physically. The two men had burned some of the women after they'd killed them, and soon after the jury were shown forensic evidence of charred limbs, I came out in a rash. When it came to the evidence about the murders, and the box the rape victims had testified in was empty, I felt desperately sad. But remarkably, Jess added that she didn't want revenge on Mulcai. I know, right? She explained how at one point her job had taken her inside a Category A prison to work with violent offenders, including rapists, continuing. I stood up in front of them and said, I'm a rape victim and I believe in forgiveness. One of the men stood up and said, I want to say that I know I did wrong and I'm sorry, I regret it and I hope I never do wrong again. One by one, all the other men stood up too in a strange kind of solidarity. The feeling was incredible. All of them were able to be honest about themselves in a way you only can when you've gone beyond ego. These men need to be taken out of circulation, but a therapeutic environment is what they need to heal so that we, their victims, can heal too. It's a remarkable statement that, isn't it? Concerning her own attack, she continued how she'd even following the verdict applied to interview Duffy and Mulcahy in jail wanting to hear them talk about the rapes and the murders to make them real. She went on, I need to have that sense that these events really happened, rather than having them just a suppressed memory. Watching Duffy give evidence and confess to everything in court, I believe he really has changed. He seems to be utterly truthful and no longer has anything to lose. Even in the beginning, I didn't really feel anger because I could see that this man was in a disturbed state. I have wept a lot, but particularly hearing the details of deaths and mutilations in the trial, the whole thing feels almost beyond anger. I feel grief rather than anger. Grief for the loss of my own life, for the loss of the other victims' lives, and for the outcome for the rapists. What a mess for all of us who've lost our lives. Being raped means the end of your life as you knew it before. From that moment on, things are radically different and part of that is about a lost innocence. I think that's a feeling all women who've been raped share. Nothing short of incredible that, is it, eh? What a heartfelt account. Yet there were others who couldn't, try as they must have, get to such a point as Jess had. The victim raped in January 1984 at Brent Cross, the German woman who just couldn't attend the trial, so psychologically damaging would it have proven for her, spoke later. 
I have spoken to no one about it, not my girlfriends or my mother. When I was not busy, I thought constantly of it. I've told myself that it happened in England and it shall stay there. I do not wish to have this experience here, which means it should not be known here. I never had any medical treatment and told no one, but repressed the experience. While the second one was raping me, he asked me my name and address. He told me that they now knew where I lived and they would find me if I told anyone. From that moment, as we've heard, the woman renounced England. She went straight home to Germany and refused to even speak or read English ever again and vowed never again to set foot there, burying what had happened within herself and not confiding even in her closest relatives and friends. The policeman that she went on to marry and their subsequent children were told nothing and when she was finally located discreetly by Operation Marfa detectives, she declined to reread her original statements and insisted on speaking only German through an interpreter. She did agree to see detectives, accompanied by a lawyer and a psychiatrist, recalling, At the beginning, I told myself that as the wife of a police officer, I must contribute towards the resolution of this offence. But she was described as, I quote, extremely depressed, with tears in her eyes and visibly shaking, while she was recounting, and refused to see detectives again to give a separate impact statement. As we've heard, alone among the 12 victims, she stayed away from court. Now I would have to hope that in the 20 years since the verdict, the woman has finally found some sort of way of trying to come to terms with it at least, though you can completely understand the difficulty, can't you? It was summed up perfectly by Detective Superintendent Andy Murphy, who had led Operation Marford when he said, following Mulcahy's conviction, What we did not realise was how badly they had all suffered, how permanently scarred they are. Some were very shocked when we came back knocking, but most were glad to know, after all these years, the case was not forgotten. Conflicting emotions indeed. Now, the families of Alison and Martia were not in court to see Mulcahy convicted, nor too was Lawrence Locke or any of Anne's friends. But Alison's former fiancé, Paul Tidyman, was there to witness it, and was quoted later as saying, It's a brilliant verdict. I'm just glad that they got him. Alison's family had remained very private and dignified in the years following her murder, but following Duffy's conviction in 1988, Father Ken was quoted at the time as saying, We visit her grave once a week to put fresh flowers on it. I think of Duffy sometimes when I'm there, and what he's done to Alison and us. He's robbed us of a lovely daughter, robbed Alison of life, of marrying and having children. He's robbed us of grandchildren, and I will never forgive him. I would like to see capital punishment restored, a life for a life. I wouldn't need five minutes in a room to take revenge. I'd like to line him up against the wall and shoot him. Completely understandable sentiment, isn't it? And I dare say not a lot of people would have mourned Duffy at all. Yet if this had happened, would they have got Mulcahy? So as much as it must have crawled at Alison's family, and I know feeling is still rife with them, as I shall come to explain shortly, him existing did lead to complete justice being done down the line. Following Mulcahy's guilty verdict, Alison's family prepared a statement in which they thanked police for their dedication 
and the support and assistance they'd been offered throughout Marford, which understandably was difficult, for alongside Marty's family, Detective Superintendent Murphy later explained. They had lived through the emotional anguish of one trial, only to learn many years later that they had to face a second one. They'd buried their children and moved on. We asked them to support a new investigation, which opened old and painful wounds for them. Allison's family issued the following dignified statement. Our hearts go out to the rape victims and their families over the trauma they have had to experience of another trial, and we can but hope that the verdict today will help to ease their pain in the knowledge that it was their evidence that assisted the outcome. Now, at the onset of the story arc, following Allison's episode being released, I was contacted by a member of Allison's family, one of her cousins, who has very kindly continued to correspond with me throughout my researching and writing of Thriller. I shall maintain anonymity completely here, but Allison's cousin has shared with me a glimpse into the pain that her family still feel today. Her mother Barbara has now long since sadly passed away, but her father Ken is still alive, although now of advanced years and her cousin was kind enough and took the time to share to me things that I hadn't discovered through researching that I shall add here, including a touching story that I was given permission to share, and which I shall do. Alison, as we said in her episode, was adopted at four months old, but the Day family already had a son, Stuart. The adoption route of Alison was one that the family took when desperately wanting another child, but medical complications for Barbara from Stuart's birth meaning that it would potentially be life-threatening for another natural conception and birth for her. Alison's death, as I don't even really need to point out, do I, shattered the Day family at the time, and still to this day, it's an extremely painful memory that time hasn't really healed, and perhaps never fully will. Her cousin vividly remembers the pain of her extended family being told of her death at the time, and speaks of countless times in the intervening years when a TV documentary or a feature on the case would mean an early and extended dog walk, it being a reminder of something still so incredibly painful for them. I also had the privilege to hear a touching story because of our correspondence, which as I've said, I have permission to share here as follows. Sometime after Alison's death, Ken and Barbara Day celebrated their ruby wedding anniversary, a celebration in which many of their extended family from all across the UK had made the trip to attend. En route to the reception being held for this, however, Stuart Day disappeared. Now he reappeared some time after the reception had started, but in quite a dishevelled state and mud-swept, totally at odds with the formalness of the day. When asked where he'd been and why he was in such a state, Stuart eventually admitted that he'd gotten so dirty from him climbing over the cemetery wall of St Andrew's Church in Hornchurch, because, perhaps overcome by such a day of celebration, he wanted to visit the one person who wasn't and couldn't be there, his sister in the cemetery, perhaps just to be near to her and to let her know she was with them in spirit. There are no words, eh? It's very much things like this, sad memories such as these, that you learn of that add that extra layer of disgust at and condemnation of the actions of individuals such as Duffy and Mulcahy, isn't it?
The family of Marcia Tamboza have remained largely private in the 35 years since her murder. Shortly after it leaving the UK and at the time of Mulcahy's trial were based in the United States in Texas. Albert Jan and Marika Tamboza did travel over from here during Mulcahy's trial but reportedly did not give a public statement following the verdict. However, a close friend of the Tambosas did later tell the press, I quote, It was incredibly difficult for them. I asked them whether this had brought it all back to them. Marika told me, We don't need this to remind us. There's not a day that goes by when I do not think of Martia. Lawrence Locke, who today is married again and still indulges in his pastime, working now in a senior position in the marine industry, also has never spoken publicly since Mulcahy's guilty verdict. Now we'd already heard of how sections of the media chose to portray a grieving and shaken Lawrence in the aftermath of his wife's disappearance and her eventual discovery. Following the discovery of Anne's body, a grieving Lawrence had made a formal complaint to the police complaints authority detailing what he described as, I quote, a catalogue of errors during the search for his missing wife, with copies of the complaint also being sent to then Hertfordshire Chief Constable Trevor Morris and Metropolitan Police Commissioner Sir Kenneth Newman. Lawrence had explained to the press at the time, I'm not looking to start some kind of battle of blame between Hertfordshire and the Met, but some major errors have been made. The police must catch the person who murdered my wife. He is a shrewd man who waits in the right place before he attacks. But because of what has happened, the police have lost the opportunity of finding vital clues. I believe potentially important evidence which the body could have yielded has been destroyed because of the time lapse. I trusted the police implicitly and feel I've been let down. Now these errors reportedly included the mishandling of evidence, namely Anne's bicycle, which bizarrely was reportedly allowed to be taken home by Lawrence within minutes of it being identified by him, only to be collected some six hours later for forensic examination, during which time a total of five people, including police officers, had handled it, and a number of requests from both he and his father asking police to search the area where Anne was eventually found, only for these to be ignored and them to be told, it is not police etiquette, possibly due to confusion over where the Hertfordshire Metropolitan Police catchment area force lines began and ended, and the fact that Anne's body was eventually found within this. Now whether it was a lack of communication between the forces is unsure, with each thinking that the other had searched the area, but the fact remains that this 200 metre section of track was missed for nine weeks, with Anne having lain there undiscovered, and it being arguably so close to Brookman's Park Station, this does seem a serious error. In his complaint, Lawrence also strongly criticised the police for the way they had unreasonably pressured him to submit to hypnosis, them reportedly being so insistent upon this that he had on one occasion tearfully agreed to it, although this was never actually carried out, and the fact that on the day that Anne's diary and address book were discovered, police had purposely hidden this discovery from him so that he would appear in a planned television appeal and be undistracted. It was reported at the beginning of August 1986 that the Police Complaints Authority had appointed an officer from an outside force to investigate these allegations. 
the job falling to the then Assistant Chief Constable of Sussex Constabulary, David Scott, to do so. However, following this inquiry, the Hertfordshire force were ultimately cleared of everything by a few minor issues regarding their conduct of Operation Swallow. Then, of course, we heard of Lawrence's tragedy following him giving evidence at Duffy's trial in 1988 with the death of his father, showing just how much his family had been so affected by the actions of this pair. To then move on with your life in the shadow of all this, only to so many years later have to face all of such a nightmare again, being requested by Mulcahy's defence to give evidence, in a malicious and pretty much futile attempt to remind the jury that you'd once been a suspect in your wife's death too. Poor bloke is all I could say. I can completely understand his dignified silence. The years between trials undoubtedly being painful ones for him, and to pick that scab off again must be unimaginable. Not only had Mulcahy's trial taken its toll on the victims and their families and loved ones then, but also upon the members of the jury themselves, for it was to be one of the longest murder trials in British criminal history, and involved them sitting through months of nightmarish accounts of unspeakable crimes, visiting the locations of rapes and murders to contextualise these accounts, and witnessing some of the most distressing crime scene photographs that there must be. You really can't imagine it, can you? So much so that the trial was given a recess over the Christmas and New Year period so as to not spoil the festive time for them with their families and loved ones. And following the verdict, every member of the jury was discharged by Mr Justice Hyam from ever having to undertake jury service again. And what of the Operation Marford team, who had worked three years on the £2 million inquiry? The entire core team were ultimately later awarded a commissioner's commendation for their work to bring Mulcahy to justice, which had tested each of them. Immediately following his conviction, Detective Superintendent Andy Murphy told the press, I feel absolutely drained. Obviously, the team is shattered. They are physically and mentally exhausted. There is huge satisfaction because of the type of investigation, but a huge sense of relief. It was such a horrendous series of offences and Mulcahy got away with it for so long. He was such an arrogant and self-confident person, even at the very last he sneered to the three victims who had sat through the trial. Now it was undoubtedly a painstaking job very well done, and yet in the face of such evidence, there were still people who believed in Mulcahy's innocence. His wife Sandra said immediately after the verdict was announced, David is innocent and I will fight on to prove him innocent. I knew they would find him guilty. The system is fixed. Now as I told in the previous episode, it's my opinion that Sandra Mulcahy was in something I don't know how best to describe more than an uneven marriage. There's no evidence to suggest that Mulcahy ever physically abused her, Although during a conversation I had with a former officer who'd worked on Operation Heart, we both agreed that this was possible, indeed likely, and we heard in the previous episode how following their marriage, she rarely went out, she played the devoted wife and mother, forgave him an affair, let him do what he wanted, sounding almost brainwashed into believing and defending Mulcahy at every turn. We've also heard of his verbal disregard, his hatred even, for women, as was recounted by former work colleagues of his, plus several examples of his temper, 
and what we know of his actions throughout his marriage that ultimately landed him 250 years plus imprisonment, well, it's not a massive jump to consider that he was a domestic abuser, really, is it? Yet on the surface, all appeared domestic bliss. A woman named Anne Simpson, who lived near to the couple in Chalk Farm and who knew them, said Mulcahy and Sandra appeared to be a happy couple who were affectionate in public. I, for one, was shocked when he was first arrested in the late 80s, she said later. Now, if Sandra Mulcahy was, however, it didn't show. She'd remained loyal to Mulcahy, despite the fact that by 1999, he had been arrested four times in connection with rapes and murders. Was she worn down to do so by that point? Indeed, in the sole interview that Sandra Mulcahy gave to the press some six weeks after Mulcahy's imprisonment, you're left with the impression of someone almost ground down into subservience. And I mean that with no disrespect. She seems to defend him always, saying, I quote, I looked him in the eye and said, We have never hidden anything from each other. Tell me the truth. Did you do it? He said, No, I didn't rape or murder anyone. I believe him. I don't see the violent, terrible man people describe. And I refuse to listen to what the police John Duffy or the public think of David. The only person who will make me believe any different will be David himself. David has told me he's innocent and that is enough for me. If in years to come he admits he did those crimes, then my sons and I will walk away and never see him again. Meanwhile, I believe him 100%. Except for that last line where you kind of think, mm, I don't, I'm not convinced that she does really. Describing Duffy, she said, following their marriage in 1978. Soon afterwards, David brought him round for a cup of tea. I didn't want him in our home. Duffy made it clear to me that he hated me for coming between him and David, and we fell out. I told David not to have anything to do with him, and he told me they hardly saw each other. Which was bullshit, as we know. Yet even in the face of her husband's obvious lies to her, she goes so far as to completely blame Duffy for any trouble Mulcahy was ever in, excusing the countless petty crimes that Mulcahy kept committing, despite empty promises from him to her that he wouldn't, saying, He only took cars from A to B, he didn't damage them. I think he did it because he was egged on by friends, including Duffy, who I felt used and manipulated him. He promised he definitely wouldn't do it again. He wouldn't let me break up with him. Proof that she offered, meanwhile, of Mulcahy's innocence in the crimes was the fact that he'd built cots and wardrobes for the family, and I know, yeah, okay, go figure, before squarely laying the blame of her husband's imprisonment on Duffy's lies, saying, He didn't want to die in prison while David was out having a good time. He envies David's lifestyle. His accomplice was another friend that he didn't tell anyone about, not even David. Now, is this delusion really because you can't accept, and of course it must be hard to, but you can't accept that the father of your children is the monster he was shown to be in court, or was she really that manipulated by Mulcahy that she was actually convinced that he was innocent? She struck me as a bit of a tragic figure who had had more than her fair share of heartache up to that point, with the death of two sons and reportedly another suffering from cancer at the time of the trial. And I'm led to believe, following further correspondence I've had with someone close to a source in the prison service, 
that in the years since his conviction, she's perhaps rethought her stance and with the children now grown up, has distanced herself from Mulcai. And who could blame her, I ask you? Now another person who's had mixed fortune since the case is Professor David Cantor, who although now retired, is still Emeritus Professor at the University of Liverpool, and continues to publish works in environmental and forensic psychology. Professor Cantor's criminal profile that helped raise John Duffy from number 1594 on the Z-Men list up to number one was rightly seen as groundbreaking and it went on to shape his future career as well as be the catalyst for the commonplace investigative tool that profiling is today in which he's still classed as a leading figure. He's the author of several published works that as I said in the profile episode I can heartily recommend both Criminal Shadows and Mapping Murder as being fascinating reads, and spent the latter part of his career alongside studying the psychological effects that atrocities such as 9-11 have on people, both present at and affected by it, but also studying the psychological effects that complex cases of financial crime have on people. Hell of a smart guy. So, you couldn't make it up then, you really couldn't that in 2017, Professor Cantor himself was the victim of a near £18,000 fraud when he fell prey to a very carefully orchestrated telephone email scam. I was a complete idiot, I am the first to admit it. I should have known better and I should have spotted it, said Professor Cantor later. The fraudsters had initially hacked into his BT email account and had sent a message to all of his contacts saying that he was stranded in Turkey without any money. So after being alerted to this by his friends, he changed his password. But a week later, Professor Cantor realised he wasn't receiving any emails. And following lengthy conversations with the BT help desk, he realised his email messages were being automatically forwarded onto another address the fraudsters had set up. Professor Cantor then received a telephone call on his ex-directory number from a polite woman with an Indian accent claiming to be acting on behalf of BT. The woman took Professor Cantor through a series of checks, asking him to corroborate unique numbers on his computer, which he wrongly assumed meant the caller was legitimate. The woman then passed him on to a man who asked the professor to download some protective software before logging into his bank accounts, which he again agreed to do so. The whole operation took several hours, and the professor even chatted to this fake technician about his BT training and his university education in Britain, a convincing backstory which helped make the professor believe that they were putting a block on his bank accounts so they could not be accessed. But in reality, the scammers were setting up transfers to move thousands of pounds into their own accounts. Professor Cantor recalled, Whilst they were putting this block into the system, the screen went completely blank. The man on the phone said, Don't panic, and then he moved on to the next account. I was doing other work at the same time, and I think they deliberately targeted me before a bank holiday, so it would be difficult for me to contact the banks. But at the end of the call, Professor Cantor finally started to get suspicious, and the realisation of what was actually happening sunk in. He continued, They said they were at the end of their working day, and they would finish in the morning, as it was about 5pm, so when the call finished, I rang an IT expert that I use and he told me straight away that it was a scam. 
Professor Cantor immediately logged into his online accounts to change the passwords and then contacted Lloyds, NatWest and Santander to alert the fraud departments. He saw that the hackers had set up transfers of £2,500 from his Lloyds account, £7,500 from his NatWest account and two sums of £3,919 from his Santander account, a total of £17,838. Now although the Lloyds and the NatWest payments were stopped almost immediately without him losing funds, the Santander one was processed, though he was after some six weeks to be refunded in full. However, when he called the police on the evening that he was scammed, he was told to report his case to Action Fraud, who turned out to be as much use as tits on a fish. He telephoned the service and was asked to fill out the details online, and although he'd found the names and account details and numbers for the fraudsters in his account payment histories, and had kept these details as evidence, he was told not to include any of these bank account details for the fraudsters, and later received a letter from Action Fraud saying that there were no leads. Action Fraud later claimed that it had received the report from Professor Cantor in April 2017, which was assessed by the National Fraud Intelligence Bureau at the City of London Police. However, it deemed there were, I quote, insufficient lines of inquiry for an investigation based in the UK, before adding that with a quarter of a million crimes reported to Action Fraud every year, not all cases can be passed on for further investigation but that the disruptions team was able to take down the phone number used by the fraudsters, which they then did bugger all with. It doesn't fill you full of confidence in them, that, does it? So, what then of the pair that have been responsible for this entire arc? It has to be said that in the years following the conviction of his partner in crime, John Francis Duffy has remained a largely quiet figure featured very rarely in the news ever since his second conviction at the Old Bailey two decades ago. Although reports are that he has on at least one occasion been attacked with a prison-made cosh of batteries in a sock, still despised for his vile crimes. As we've heard from his own words, he's seemingly long since accepting of his sentence, and as he said at Mulcahy's trial, one who fully expects to die in prison for his crimes never once attempting to appeal either his conviction or his sentence. He reportedly also remains in sporadic touch with Dr Cutler, although he is today housed at Her Majesty's Prison Frankland up in County Durham, having been transferred away from Whitemore Prison a few years ago now. But the same cannot be said for David Mulcahy, who's been in the news several times since his conviction, and who to this very day still maintains his innocence despite the evidence against him, insisting that John Duffy maliciously and falsely implicated him in the crimes. In 2003, it was reported that solicitors acting for Mulcahy had employed the services of DNA expert Martin Everson in an attempt to prove Mulcahy's claim that he was framed by his accomplice. Ever loving being the centre of attention, Mulcahy had also written letters to the Sunday Mirror newspaper in which he revealed that he'd written to Duffy, urging him, I quote, to tell the truth for the sake of my family. Now, in likely the same letters and the subsequent article that was published, Mulcahy made the unsubstantiated, quite wild claim 
that Duffy had been paid the sum of £20,000 for his confessions. Claims that his then solicitor, Giovanni Di Stefano, who's worthy of an episode himself, and I'm sure will feature here on The Enthusiast at some point, claimed it needed to be investigated. Regardless to say, both of these avenues went nowhere. Two years later, Mulcahy was again contacting the newspapers, this time in a letter to the York Press, to hit back at raised allegations that he was involved in the organisation of fight clubs at Her Majesty's Prison Full Sutton in York, where he'd been since only a couple of months following his conviction, and incidentally where he was moved to from Belmarsh Prison after receiving a smack in the mouth from someone from him being lippy when he was in a meal queue. You can kind of imagine it, can't you? The clubs were alleged to involve prisoners fighting each other to settle debts, while other inmates bet on the outcome. I don't know if one of them was dressed as meatloaf or anything, but I digress. The possibility of there being such fight clubs had previously been raised in a report in December of the previous year by the Chief Inspector of Prisons, Anne Owers, and the Evening Press of January the 9th reported that a Sunday newspaper had alleged that David Mulcahy had been named by a source as the man behind the full Sutton one. But Mulcahy firmly claimed that these were a tissue of lies. He went on, There is, as far as I know, no such fight club here at Full Sutton, and I certainly have no affiliation with any such action. The prison would only be too happy to remove me from enhanced status if they even had a suspicion I was involved in any of the actions. Somebody obviously knows the first rule of fight club, don't they? In his letter, Mulcahy was also quick to point out that he was wrongfully imprisoned, insisting, I've always maintained my innocence and I'm at present in the process of obtaining my appeal. Following this, a spokesperson for the prison service said it could neither confirm nor deny Mulcahy's prison status or comment on any of the allegations against him, but it did refer to a statement released by the service in December 2004 which said that no proof had ever been found of a fight club at Full Sutton. It said, There are occasional confrontations between prisoners, but these are managed effectively by the prison. So somebody obviously knows the second rule of fight club as well. Now if he was organising fight clubs, he was pretty bloody awful at it himself, for it was reported in July 2008 that Mulcahy had been battered senseless left scarred and needing 10 stitches to a head injury, inflicted upon him from a convicted armed robber named Dean Winfield, who'd taken a tin of carrots and frozen it before putting it in a sock and attacking Mulcahy with it in the showers. A prison source said at the time, He managed to get Mulcahy in the showers, but he only got a few blows in before the alarm was raised. Death by carrots wouldn't have been the most glamorous way to go, but it's nothing less than he deserves. There have been plenty of jokes flying around that Mulcahy's crack on the head is a 24 carat injury. He's not Mr. Popular here, is he? Yet rather than keeping your head down, and he must be despised anyway, being a triple sex killer and multiple rapist, that constant need for attention we've heard so much about him means that Mulcahy just can't seem to stay out of the limelight, be it for whatever reason. In July 2014, Mulcahy caused outrage amongst victims groups and MPs after boasting to friends that he'd won a £515 compensation taxpayer-funded payout from the prison service 
for a damaged parcel sent from Full Sutton. In a letter to friends, Mulcahy said, My package was destroyed. The judge ruled that the prison had lied and they were totally responsible for any damage. I won £515. But after bragging about this, he wrote, Be warned, if you sue and win, there will be consequences and reprisals. Mulcahy claimed that prison bosses now wouldn't let him send any parcels out, including a model made for the Coistler Trust Prison Art Awards, in which the prize for the winning prisoner is £100 and a certificate. Further in his rant, he continued, They are now also refusing to answer my applications or request complaint forms on this matter. News of the compensation paid to Mulcahy sparked fury at the time, with Conservative MP Philip Davis saying, The fact that murderers and rapists such as Mr Mulcahy can be compensated for a damaged parcel goes to show just how perverse our legal system has become. The only reason he is in prison is because of his vile crimes, and for him to be able to pursue this claim from his cell is utterly ridiculous. The compensation should be stripped from him to benefit the families of his victims. You'd not catch me arguing that at all. A prison service spokesperson said, We defended this claim and are disappointed with the judge's decision. The government has no intention of paying compensation to prisoners when there is no good reason to do so, and robustly defends all cases as far as the evidence allows. The Justice Secretary has ordered a review of the system to ensure taxpayers' money does not go to those who shouldn't get it. Three months after this, Mulcahy was reported to be amongst a group of long-term inmates who had lodged a claim with the European Court of Human Rights in an attempt to gain compensation for every election that he'd missed during the time he'd spent in prison. Now, this claim for compensation stemmed from an ECHR ruling from almost 10 years before that found the United Kingdom breached human rights by denying prisoners the right to vote in elections. More than a thousand vote compensation claims had been lodged at the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, and of course, Mulcahy was on the list of these claimants. Now, it was previously estimated that if they were successful in their case, prisoners could receive up to a thousand pounds for every election they'd missed the chance to vote in while being incarcerated, meaning a compensation bill that could run into millions. However, despite debate, reports, proposals, all the usual long-winded bollocks that these things go through, the legislation has not been altered and currently under UK law, in provisions set out in Section 3 of the Representation of the People Act 1983, prisoners who are serving a custodial sentence after a conviction cannot vote in any elections, though this ban does not apply to prisoners who are on remand which seems a complete victory for common sense, if you ask me. Now in March of the following year, Mulcahy took the Metropolitan Police to court as he was planning to appeal his sentence, and demanded that the Met release all records about him, every single detail they kept about him, dating back more than 30 years, to help him prove his innocence, which he was still maintaining. He told Judge Margaret Langley at the Central London County Court, appearing via video link from Full Sutton, that the Met was obliged under the Data Protection Act to give him everything he wants. I should be entitled to all the documents that the police hold. I'm preparing an appeal, and I need those documents for the appeal, 
I am fighting for liberty and life, Mulcahy said. The forces barrister Robin Hopkin said in response, My client has provided all the information it holds that can be provided without it undertaking disproportionate levels of burden in terms of cost and time. A Metropolitan Police Data Protection Officer, John Potts, furthered to the court that it could take weeks or even months of costly work to get it together and that the documents, if they were piled on top of each other, would be more than three feet high. He added that to work through the 6,000 documents would take 23 full working days and would likely lead them to more documents that would eat up a similar amount of time. There would also have to be meetings with victims' families, senior officers and others mentioned in the papers before they could be released, he said. Judge Langley said that a decision on Mulcahy's application would not be made until later that year, and later indeed dismissed the claim, ruling that it would indeed be disproportionate. Now a link to a PDF containing the remarks of this ruling is available in the episode show notes for you to have a read of. And perhaps Mulcahy has finally realised that to appeal would be futile, for he never has officially appealed, perhaps fearing that it would be rejected outright. And for good reason too, for following this ruling, a police officer involved in Operation Marford said, Duffy's only friend in the world was Mulcahy. It is virtually unprecedented for two men to rape together. The chances of Duffy having another friend who would willingly take part in such awful crimes is beyond the realms of common sense. Indeed, eh? Oh, and add to that your DNA profile, fingerprints, descriptions, and victims who now admitted they'd recognise Mulcahy on their initial identity parades. He managed to be quiet for a few years following this. But in February 2020, he was again in the news, this time threatening legal action after his self-described award-winning 18-inch matchstick model of a Formula One car, which he claims took him 2,000 hours to build, was stolen after being shown at an exhibition. Mulcahy is reportedly an avid artist in prison and regularly submits entries to the annual Koestler Arts Prison Art Awards, winning a bronze award with a £20 prize and a certificate for the car in 2019. He was left fuming, however, after finding out that his model had been lost or stolen after being shown at an exhibition held at the South Bank Centre in London between September and November the previous year. Writing in Prisoner's Magazine, Inside Time, Mulcahy said, We all know the good work that Koisler do to give us a platform for our creative side, but be advised that on occasion, they can totally lose your exhibit. I spent almost 2,000 hours constructing a scale model of a Formula One car, completely out of wood, all cell-made. I have over the years won numerous gold awards, so I can't be too bad at it. I have also over the years had several exhibits badly damaged whilst in the care of Koisler, so now I make arrangements for my exhibits to be hand-delivered and collected. I've also had a custom display case made at a cost of £175. He added in the letter, You can imagine then my utter dismay when after five unanswered letters, I was told that my exhibit was lost by Koisler staff. Koisler state, We accept no responsibility for any loss or damage, however caused. The defence being, So sorry we let someone take it from our secure location. It wasn't our care. 
but you get nothing and we won't check our CCTV to see who took it. I didn't use the postal courier system, so unless I did such a great job that the car could actually drive off itself, then someone took it. He then said that he wanted to know if there was any legal precedent which would allow the we accept no responsibility defence to be challenged and had asked legal minds at Inside Time to help him out. Bosses at the magazine said at the time that it indeed sent the questions raised by Mulcahy to Koistler, a spokesperson for whom said, As you can imagine, to protect confidentiality, we cannot confirm or deny names of participants in our programmes or discuss any individual cases. Koistler Arts handles all artworks with respect, returning over 3,000 visual artworks to people in the criminal justice system across the UK annually. In the rare instances where something is lost or damaged on its way to us, in our care or on return, we try to find out what happened and do our best to put things right. This bleating letter, in which the arrogance and big-headed nature of Mulcahy is evident, again did him no good. And really, you have no sympathy at all, dear. Maybe you deserve to know what it's like to lose something precious, something that you can't control. And then, merely a few weeks ago as I write and record this, Mulcahy was again back on the letters, this time in one to the production crew creating the Railway Killers three-part documentary that aired on Channel 5 in the UK in August 2021, links to which are in the episode show notes, and which was read out on camera by retired officer Mick Freeman, who had been so instrumental in bringing Mulcahy to justice. In it, Mulcahy states, I quote, I continue to challenge my conviction for one single fact. I did not commit these horrific crimes. It's a very simple thing to say, but a very hard one for people to believe me. The mainstay of the evidence against me is from a self-proclaimed liar. He was my friend, and I should have seen what he was. A monster. Yours truthfully, David Mulcahy. Truthfully, yeah. And unbelievably... And as has been shared on the show's Facebook group already, I think, Mulcahy even has a website protesting his innocence that is largely maintained by his former skating friend, Junior Mayhew, who continues to believe his innocence. A link to it is in the episode show notes, and believe me, I've been through it several times, and my own personal feeling aside, each time I do, I'm left with the same conclusion. Though it's quite in-depth in content, it's very poorly written and comes across as best as I can describe in my own opinion as bleating with mock apologies to the victims for keeping these terrible crimes in the limelight. And it even gives the surnames of the rape victims in a link, as well as naming in full the girl who was raped by John Duffy alone in Watford in October 1986, a case that has no bearing on Mulcahy's own conviction whatsoever, and certainly are not details I would ever have repeated here. Now I can think of no reason from these names being added apart from a last gasp show of arrogance or spite or control, call it what you will. I do find the arguments in the website quite pathetic and somewhat contrived, and whilst I have no wish for Mulcahy to gain any attention following my recommendations, because he loves it, doesn't he? I do invite you to visit it, have a read yourselves, and make up your own minds from it. Check it out, it's in a link in the episode show notes. But it largely will do Mulcahy any good, 
as for more than 35 years now, he's been lying consistently about his involvement and is still arrogant enough to believe that his constant protests of innocence will win him out eventually. Well, they haven't in the 20 years you've spent inside already, have they? But this mask has slipped on occasion. A former friend and lodger of Mulcahy's, Jerry Buckley, said following his conviction, When the police got Duffy, they raided me as well. They knew he had an accomplice and thought it must be me or Dave. I was completely innocent and was able to prove it. When I talked about it with David, he was evasive. After John was jailed, he never mentioned him. On one occasion when it came up, he said to me, There wasn't a second man. If there had been, don't you think the police would have found him by now? I was completely rocked to hear that he'd been arrested for the murders. The bizarre thing is that he rang me from jail laughing and joking. I thought he was drunk. He said, I've been nicked for murder, but he was giggling when he said it. What I can't get over is he had four children. How can you have children of your own, then do what he did to other people's children? Indeed, how can you? How do two people get set on such a road of depravity? Well, moving on from scaring people and all of the antisocial behaviour we've heard about the pair, it simply became an exciting thrill for them, and Dr Jenny Cutler, so instrumental in getting Duffy to open up, believed that certain elements of the pair's partnership in violence reinforced their addiction to it, saying, They both found offending very exciting. Rape took that to another level. The hunt, working as a team, having contingencies for how they were going to operate and the outwitting of the police all contributed to the excitement. One theory is that bullying at school may have been the key factor in driving them to rape and kill, than wanting to strike back at society, and cowardly, choosing a victim each time who would be no match for two men armed with knives. We've already heard that they developed severely psychotic sides to their personalities from an early age, and the wicked bond that they had was cemented by deep feelings of sexual inadequacy from the pit. Duffy's hatred of women sprang from his low sperm count, which as we've heard prevented him from fathering children, and reportedly throughout his life, Mulcahy had been troubled by difficulties in maintaining an erection, which as we've heard, would drive him to escalating sexual depravity and violence to arouse himself. The disturbing reality is, though, that by working together in tandem, reinforcing each other's desires helped them trivialise what they were doing, and as a pair looking out for each other, having complete confidence in the other, led to a belief of invulnerability in the twisted codependent relationship. Dr Cutler, however, recognised two distinct MOs in the pair's motivations to attack women, saying, they had different reasons for committing rape. Duffy was aroused by the idea, while Mulcahy's bent was violence. It was Mulcahy's unsated urges which led the pair to kill. She even believes, and it does have a ring of truth to it this does, that on the night Alison Day was murdered, Mulcahy had deliberately used Duffy's real name on purpose as an excuse to justify this step to murder perhaps concerned that his partner in crime was developing a conscience. We've heard how Duffy testified that he was concerned Mulcahy was becoming too violent with victims, so did Mulcahy do this to force his hand and tie them into murder together? Did Duffy then comply, perhaps out of fear? 
We've heard how he was dominated by Mulcahy, and more than one police officer has stated their belief that he was in fact terrified of him. The remarks Mulcahy made following the murder would suggest this, about them being in it together and disgustingly, it being the right thing to do, as would him later demanding that Duffy strangle Marcia Tamboza because it was his turn. As Dr Cutler later remarked, it gave Mulcahy permission to take it to that next step and for Duffy to prove himself to Mulcahy that he didn't have a conscience. And had they done it many more times that perhaps aren't known or were never reported? Well, following Mulcahy's conviction, at least a further 18 women came forward to say that they'd been attacked by men matching their description. One in Surrey, another in Hertfordshire, and the others in the North London area, attacks that took place between 1978 and 1990, and involved one or two offenders. Detective Superintendent Murphy said at the time, These women have found the confidence to come forward after seeing justice served in respect to David Mulcahy. My team will be conducting inquiries to gather evidence and identify the offender or offenders involved in these new cases. We are putting these incidents to Mulcahy and Duffy as the pattern of offences appear to follow that of the pair and were committed in the same areas of their convicting. They are our prime suspects. These women have seen pictures of them and believe Duffy and Mulcahy attacked them. We will put the allegations to them and we will listen to what they say. He added, If there is sufficient evidence to charge Mulcahy and Duffy, then we will do so. However, it is also possible that these crimes were committed by someone else. We certainly think that there may be other victims out there, victims that didn't come forward during the 80s. They were maybe frightened off by their tactics, which was to demand names and addresses, and threaten reprisals if victims did go to the police. Duffy has admitted to all of the offences he can positively remember, but he has said that they all rolled into one, so it could be double figures, it could be higher. Hopefully Mulcahy will serve life and never be released, but that doesn't mean we won't look to prosecute for other offences. Now no further charges have ever reportedly to date been brought against John Duffy or David Mulcahy, but there are unquestionably further victims of this pair that either didn't have the courage to have reported the attack, perhaps out of fear of not being believed, or by the tactics of the pair as we've heard, or misplaced shame or guilt, perhaps even some who tragically couldn't live with the horror of what had been inflicted upon them and sadly took their own lives. What also suggests to me is that there are many others, as I said in the previous episode, is that as far back as 1975 or 1976, this pair had twice broken into houses with the intentions of raping the occupant. So why then does a mindset like that go on hold for six years? I don't believe that it does personally. I believe that this pair were attacking, perhaps together, perhaps independently, at least from the late 1970s. And like Duffy, I believe that Mulcahy was also prepared to rape alone. I also believe, and I'm not by myself in thinking this, it's cropped up in several conversations I've had concerning the case with different people who were of the same opinion, that David Mulcahy continued to offend after Duffy was imprisoned in the 1980s. Now we can't of course say for certain that he's committed other offences, indeed there's no evidence to suggest that he did, 
But if someone considers killing young women in the most truly horrific of ways is godlike and is clearly excited and aroused by doing it, and especially someone with the arrogance and cruelty of David Mulcahy, then how on earth do they stop doing it? I discussed this point in a fascinating conversation I had recently with a former officer who'd worked on Operation Heart, and we were both in agreement. He didn't. He simply changed his MO. Mulcahy was for most of his life a jobbing builder whose work took him all over the capital, perhaps even across the country, giving him plenty of opportunity for victims he considered he would be too far removed from to ever be suspected of. By that point, he may even have been completely past rape as any part of the offence, instead getting his sole thrill from murder. For I find it too difficult to believe that a violent triple killer and mass rapist can suddenly revert to being a family man. I would suggest more that family man was the actual mask that David Mulcahy wore. Unfortunately, we are never likely to know for sure. His continuing protestations of innocence in the offences he's serving life for mean that his admitting to these and other crimes isn't happening. And Duffy? Well, I would believe that Duffy has admitted all that he possibly can do. He's bared his evil soul as much as he can remember. For really, what did he have to lose? Dr. Cutler genuinely believes that, I quote, He got in touch with a more empathetic side to him. He seemed to want to get it off his conscience and also to make sure that Mulcahy couldn't commit future killings. Now perhaps there's an element of truth to that, but again, something that others I've discussed this with have been in agreement with me about, and senior police officers also share this sentiment too, is that maybe there was an element of revenge in Duffy's confessions. Remember, there'd been no visits, no telephone calls, not even a letter from Mulcahy, since 1986, he'd completely cut his partner in crime dead. Now a decade is quite a long time to brood upon this abandonment, and had Mulcahy made somewhat of a token effort from time to time to get in touch with Duffy, then it poses the question, would the outcome have possibly been different? Could he have still been on the streets today? Food for thought that, isn't it? Thankfully, Instead, neither man is ever expected to be released from prison alive, their crimes being so appalling that for Duffy and Mulcahy, life will mean exactly that. How much sleep will you lose over that, eh? Instead, whilst the pair deservedly rot for their crimes, spare them little more thought, and instead, please take away from this first and foremost the thoughts of so many women whose lives were blighted by the evil this pair have in them and the three women who lost their lives to them. The series is dedicated to them. And with that, it brings a conclusion to the thriller arc of the sixth series of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. It has been a remarkable amount of work and research to bring to you, but also the most fascinating, worthwhile and consuming case to have covered. One that's put me into contact with so many people whose input and sounding off with has been invaluable to the ARC and which I thank you for. You know who you are. There is a wealth of information available concerning the case out there, but I must say that the most valuable source I've found, and the definitive account of the crimes it really is, is Simon Farquhar's book, A Dangerous Place. It's breathtaking, it's fabulously detailed and informatively written, and you won't be able to put it down. I couldn't, I 
can't recommend it highly enough and it's been so useful in creating the thriller arc. There are also several other books that feature the crimes in chapters, several documentaries available online, some better and more informative than others, links to other worthwhile reads such as Mulcahy's website, and umpteen newspaper articles. Have a look through the sources and the further reading section of the episode show notes. I'm off now to put the bag of books that I've been carting around with me since June back onto the shelves of my library where they will now stay for a bloody considerable amount of time without ever coming down again, maybe have a little nosebleed and try and forget the chilling features of John Duffy and David Mulcahy, though I'm sure that going forward that'll be difficult. I hope that overall though you found Thriller an interesting and informative listen. Perhaps I never intended it to be as lengthy as it's turned out to be, but I've told the story how I wanted to, and it's worked out how it has. I would love as always to hear any feedback or join in any discussions concerning the entire arc, which I invite you to do so in the thread that's now up in the show's Facebook discussion group, or through any of the show's social media links. You know where you can find me by now, folks. I shall be having a bit of a well-earned break now and I'll be staggering episodes somewhat for a few weeks as well because I've got a book to put the finishing touches to. I may have hinted once or twice at. But I'll be back with you very soon with another brand new tale from The Enthusiast that I hope that you can join me for. With that, I shall wrap things up here right now and say that I've been, I still am and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, thanks very much for joining me, and goodbye for now.